0: Welcome to the March 2021 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. History has always occupied an important place in the journal. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic motivated history editor Ted Brown to assemble a set of articles by public health historians to compare COVID-19 with pandemics of the past. In this podcast, we show how the tables were turned over the course of a century and left the USA, China, and Spain in very different relations to each other. Just about a century ago, Spain had been stigmatized for the so-called Spanish flu, even though The influenza pandemic most likely began in the United States. In 1911, there was an outbreak of respiratory plague in China. The then imperial regime did not have the means to control it and it could have threatened to become a pandemic if it didn't kill almost all of those it infected. In contrast, today Spain has conducted the most extensive and informative seroprevalence survey in the world. China has efficiently controlled the progression of COVID-19 and suffered a relatively small number of deaths given the size of its population, and many criticized the USA for the failed response to the pandemic on many levels. Today, I will be meeting with Dr. Ted Brown and Dr. Miguel Hernan in a panel session and separately with Dr. Ruth Frogaski to explore these historical turnarounds.
1: Ted? Uh, I'm Ted Brown. I'm a professor emeritus of history and public health sciences at the University of Rochester. I've been an associate editor for history at the Journal for 23 years. Did that with Liz Fee, and now I'm flying solo.
0: Miguel.
2: My name is Miguel Hernan, and I am a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.
0: Ruth Rogaski.
3: I'm a professor of history at Vanderbilt University, and I teach Chinese medical history.
0: Ted, do you think is there any usefulness for practice and for public health interventions? of history.
1: I do think so. And I think there are important lessons that we can draw from looking back historically at pandemics that we've experienced and try to contend with. And for the set of papers that are appearing in the March issue, that was a look particularly at the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. So give me an example of one
0: of the main lessons that you drew from this set of articles.
1: Focusing on the 1918-1919 pandemic. A study simply of the way it played out, remembering that in 1918, 1919 there was very little understanding of the biology of the causal agent. Viruses, in fact, the appropriate viruses weren't really discovered and worked out until the 1930s. Vaccines weren't available until the 1940s, and so the world had to contend with this massive pandemic, and try to learn whatever it could and respond in any way it could without what we would think of as the major biomedical tools that we have at our disposal. More pointedly, there were human interventions and they proved quite useful. We call these social mitigation measures that were attempted very early on in 1918-1919, and some of those were successful And when they looked successful and people wanted to do away with them and end them, then there was a resurgence of the epidemic or pandemic. Those are lessons that we can learn from and should learn from. In addition to that, there was resistance to those social mitigation measures. And some of the authors in this set of papers have studied the resistance and what patterns they showed. What was done to try to overcome the resistance? What were successful measures which were unsuccessful? And what can we learn about that for our own present circumstances? There was a very complex epidemiology of the pandemic in 1918, 1919. One of the papers is a very close study of what happened in Michigan during that period with a very interesting finding that in 1920, there was what they called an echo wave Maybe we will have the same sort of thing. If we deal with COVID-19 successfully, there might yet be an echo wave in 2022 that we have to be aware of, and we can learn a lesson to prepare for that. And of course, there are very important socioeconomic lessons. Close study of what happened in 1918, 1919 makes it very clear that social class and race was very significant in determining case fatality rate. No matter what the incidence, case fatality rate varied by race and social class. Not much was done about it in 1918, 1919. We have information now that would help us make compensatory interventions in order to avoid some of the worst consequences. Ruth,
0: as a historian, you see a practical usage of history when we deal with the pandemic, such as COVID-19?
3: I think for me, it's not necessarily in terms of specific policies. The number one thing I think that history teaches us is a sense of humility and a sense of the limitations of technological fixes, limitations of political fixes. When you study history and you do tend to see similar responses over and over again, whether it's in colonial America, railing against Cotton Mather's inoculation of his servants for smallpox, to problems with rollouts, in the post-war U.S. to today. Obviously, there are tremendous differences, but just the knowledge of the problems, things that ultimately become public health victories, an historian will peel apart the layers behind those victories and recognize the immense problems. And I think it can give contemporary administrators a sense of humility and a better sense of what the possibilities are, maybe more patience with the foibles of human beings.
0: For you, Miguel, let's look at this example, which I found very impressive. In 1918, the Spanish flu, even though it had nothing to do
1: with Spain. That's because it wasn't a combatant in World War I. That's how it got the stigma attached to it. Absolutely. But today, Spain is showing
0: the example. The survey that you've conducted in Spain ran population-based survey of the state of the epidemic is something we don't have in the U.S. So how, how do you explain this change in the situation?
2: I think that it goes uh, way beyond Spain. I think that we are lucky to live in these times, that if this pandemic had happened in a different period in history, our lives would have been more miserable. Still, think of what would have happened a couple of centuries earlier. Once the virus had reached a particular region, people would have started to get sick, to die in large numbers, and even if the epidemiologists of the period had advised people to stay home and limit their contacts, most of the population would have been completely unable to do that because they had jobs that required to go out and work. So our generation is very different and much more fortunate.
0: Yeah, but Miguel, there are still a lot of criticism about the way we've responded and the fact that a country like the United States still doesn't know exactly how many people have been infected a year after the beginning of the pandemic, whereas Spain, a much smaller country, has been able to conduct those studies. This is also telling.
2: Many countries are doing a lot of very good things to fight the pandemic now. In the case of Spain, as you said, the country has conducted the largest seroprevalence survey in the Western world, and and that has been very helpful for many of the decisions that have been made that should learn many things about about the behavior of the virus in the population.
1: Ted, do you agree with this statement? Basically, yes, but the example he gives of data-tracking capacity doesn't exist in the United States today. And I think the difference is if you look at Spain compared to the United States, Spain, as I understand it, has a universal national health system, and that every patient encounter and every pharmaceutical encounter is incorporated in a database. We don't have anything, to my knowledge, remotely like that. And it's part of our political history and our political struggle to move to more universal national system of care, which many European countries have achieved, but we haven't. So I think we have to be a bit careful about how we apply these generalizations.
0: Ruth Rogaski, who has also a paper in this issue mentioned the case of of China in 1911, when they had an outbreak of respiratory plague and the world qualified it as uh, the sick men of the Far East.
3: Yes, no, it's a fascinating story, the Manchurian plague of 1910, 1911. It began in part because of global demand for a luxury product, fur and many migrants poured into this region the grasslands between Mongolia Russia and China and harvested millions of these small animals the the tarbigan or the marmot and the bacteria that causes the plague yersinia pestis jumped from the reservoir the rodent who lived underground into the lungs of man and it rapidly spread Throughout this region of northeast China, along the rail lines, as migrants tried to flee the area where plague was breaking out, but of course they brought the pneumonically transferred plague with them. And by the spring of 1911, it's estimated that over 60,000 people had succumbed to mnemonic plague.
0: Why was this respiratory uh, plague a wake-up call for the bureaucracy of the Chinese empire?
3: I think... One of the things we can think about the 1911 plague as, I mean, you you termed it a wake-up call. It could have been seen, I think, perhaps as a symptom of larger underlying ills within the, the body politic. And observers at the time, of course, saw the major ill as the state lacking the flexibility to acquire new knowledge. And, of course, this new knowledge was of biomedical science, germ theory, and an understanding of how an infectious disease is transmitted, which was really quite different in some ways from what traditional Chinese medicine had theorized. So there was a lot of debate within the Qing state itself about how far to go with adopting new knowledge. And the 1911 Manchurian plague was a wake-up call that yes, perhaps there is utility to adopting certain techniques of Western science and, of course, Western policing in trying to overcome public health problems.
0: You know, that was not so late, because if you think of it, in 1892, there was a, a pandemic of cholera across Europe, and it hit Hamburg, and it killed 2% of the population there. And in Hamburg, they were still believing in miasmas. So. Maybe China was not so late with respect to the rest of the world.
3: That is a very good observation, and I agree with you. I think the situation in Manchuria was particularly tricky, however, because one East Asian power in the region, Imperial Japan, had quickly adopted certain perspectives on public health and germ theory and made it a concrete part of their government administration. And so the Qing government was particularly concerned about the empire of Japan using the epidemic and epidemic control as a means of increasing their political power over that territory.
0: But then you say the Nationalist Revolution, Sun Yat-sen, and then the Communist Revolution of 1949, Mao Zedong. Those were the revolutions that brought the greatest reform of the Chinese healthcare system. So, do you think those revolutions were needed to modernize the Chinese system, or would the state have done this anyway, independently of the political superstructure?
3: That's a very interesting question, the kinds of questions that are still debated today. I'm not entirely sure that you would have to have gotten rid of an emperor in order to achieve the changes. Of course, the Nationalist Revolution was about establishing a Han Chinese-majority republic and getting rid of the minority rule of the, the Manchu people. But in terms of the desire to expand state capacity, expand state power, expand the ability of the state to reach down into the populace, and really transform the lives of individuals in the ways that elites saw as being the best scientific way. This was the ardent desire of both the nationalists and the communists.
0: You mentioned increasing the power of the state. And some people say that if China was able to respond better than the United States to the COVID-19 pandemic, it was because he's used the power of the state in a way that would be totally illegal in a democratic country. So what's the part of the communist state and what's the part of the health care system in the successful response that they had in China?
3: You're absolutely right that. Many of the policies put in place upon the immediate recognition of the outbreak in Wuhan were very draconian. Wuhan was shut down for 76 days, entirely shut down in ways that I don't think any American city has experienced to date. I think if we're trying to think through how this works in China, the number one thing we have to recognize is that dissent is not particularly well tolerated. And of course, Today, there's a rapid kind of cottage industry in the central government of recasting the narrative. There was a lot of disgruntlement in places like Wuhan over what was being done to the city. But now, interestingly, what emerges as a result of the state manipulation of the narrative is the centerpiece is the heroism of the public health network and the public health workers and of medical workers. And perhaps in New York, you'd hang out your window and applaud at seven o'clock as the shifts changed at the hospitals uptown. But now it's become an absolute national priority to exult in the roles of the healthcare workers who were mobilized very quickly and did, yes, indeed, volunteer pouring into Wuhan, for example, in response to the call for additional medical personnel. And this also included physicians of Chinese medicine. There was a a particularly strong use of traditional Chinese medicine herbal remedies in the treatment of COVID patients in Wuhan that is a, a very interesting chapter of this.
0: Miguel, what's your impression about the differential response between China and Western countries?
2: Well, China had a response in many respects, could not have been done in Western countries. If you think about the early periods of the epidemic, the type of measures that were taken there would not have been accepted by most Western countries. They wouldn't have been legal. After that, China has succeeded by closing the country, essentially, and having a very strict set of measures for the tracking of cases and contacts and isolation and things like that. But their early success in shutting down an entire city and other parts of the country with methods that were verging on the illegal in most Western countries is I don't think that their experience is easily transportable to the US or many other countries.
0: And so, Ted, what, what do you think in terms of the the differences between China and the Western countries a uh, hundred years ago and today?
1: Well, I think Ruth pointed out in her paper was that China went through some major developments, a movement of nationalism and then communism which led to the kinds of governmental forms and and powers that has just been referred to that give China that ability that doesn't exist in European countries or the United States. But the important thing is that China went through massive transformations that allowed it to catch up scientifically and in terms of public health authority. The United States is in a very sorry situation, or at least was under the Trump administration. Hopefully, we will have better times under the Biden administration. We'll get back to where we should be with appropriate agencies like the CDC and appropriate capacities to respond. But we still have a very long way to go in this country to get to something like a European universal and national system. we really do need to think in more drastic terms about system transformation, and that may require some very difficult political moments in the United States history, which for the last century we have resisted and have not moved to a universal system, though efforts began at the turn of the 20th century, and we still haven't gotten there. So, am I understanding
0: you correctly? You're saying we need a revolution like there has been in China in order to change our healthcare system?
1: Well, we need a revolution in healthcare. Whether it requires a political revolution is another question. I'd like to believe we can. Do I really believe we can? I'm not so sure. If we follow Bernie Sanders' uh, dictates, then we could have a political revolution, but created by democratic means and by a legislative process. Looking back in history and developing some skepticism on that basis, it's been very, very difficult to make major reform and even such important transformations. Miguel, I'd like to close this podcast with
0: you, because I think what you and your colleagues did in Spain is history. And just tell us what you did and how it felt to be able to marshal all the communication and and the scientific tools of our era to conduct such a a great survey.
2: Thank you for saying that that's history. The seroprevalence study in Spain was possible, like Ted said, because the country has universal health care and because there is a very strong Health system that right now is shared between the regions, between the states and the federal government. And it was really by the coordinated work of regions and federal government and the equivalent of the National Institute of Health in Spain that this could happen. I have to say also that this is one of the few examples that you can find in Spain or in other countries where this type of work that requires so many different institutions working together has succeeded. What typically happens both in Spain and in the United States and in other countries with a federal system is that this doesn't work. And in fact, you can see that in other aspects of the response to the pandemic both in Spain and the US where there hasn't been enough coordination. But I'd like to say something, if I may, in response to what Ted just said, because I of course I fully agree that we need a transformation of the of the healthcare system. But I think we cannot have this conversation without talking about the social component of the pandemic. And not only we need the transformation of the healthcare system, but we also need the transformation of how governments react to the pandemic. There are many Western countries in which governments have effectively shut down some sectors of the economy and they have given their citizens direct economic compensation or some financial support. And, and that's a huge difference between now and 1918 To that governments are much better equipped to help people. That hasn't happened in all countries, but those who have done it Essentially, they were betting that a vaccine was going to come at some point so they could sustain this level of debt for a few months or a year. But this is what has avoided countries like Spain and other countries in Europe to go into a deep social crisis at this moment.
0: Yeah, but you also got the participation of the population. I think the participation to the survey was pretty good. So how did you get this type of trust by the population that uh, we don't seem to be able to get in many places?
2: The response to the survey among those who were contacted was about 75%, which is pretty good for a population survey. I like to say that the Spanish people were very Engage and wanted to participate and be part of this. And that's probably true. It's also true that the survey was done during a lockdown. So it's also easier to find people at their homes with an appropriate campaign. A lot of people wanted to be part of this. And we cannot forget also that a lot of people at that time really wanted to know whether they had been infected or not. So the survey was in effect was offering a service because they were going to learn whether they and their families have been infected
0: all right what made spain and china stand out today compared to a century ago, while the USA is struggling to generate a response to the pandemic that is proportionate to its wealth and scientific potential. Spain, after difficult times of civil war and dictatorship, emerged as a modern Western democracy with a universal healthcare system that allowed it to coordinate a large and informative zero-survey. China also went through difficult years of wars and revolution and also built a universal healthcare system, but in a form of society which is compatible with authoritarian interventions in public health and therefore cannot be used as a model. In contrast, the response to COVID-19 in the USA has been plagued, if I may say, by a healthcare system which is not accessible to everyone. I'm grateful to all the participants to this podcast for taking the time to share and discuss their ideas. I'd also like to thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael C. Costanza for edits on an earlier version of this podcast. Anthony Bancy is the student producer for today's episode. Francis Jacob paraphrased a prelude, better known as Asturias, a virtuosic guitar piece composed by the Catalan Isaac Albenis. A bit more than a century ago, Francis plays the guitar. The papers discussed in this podcast are available on the First Look page of the journal. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at www.ajph.org or subscribe to this podcast on your usual app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. That's it. Thanks for listening.